Hello, and welcome to the Alchemy of Art podcast with your host, Addie Hirschton. Join us as we share folk tales and true stories about artists and the creative process. Our quote of the day is from Picasso. He said, Art is a lie that makes us realize the truth. Hello everyone, my name is Abby Hirshton. I'm a contemporary visionary painter, art instructor, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and the creative process to inspire you and help you move forward. On the show, I interview artists from a wide variety of mediums so that we can learn from each other's processes and philosophies. Today's podcast features an interview with Teresa Vasquez. And um, the topic of the day is the art of dreaming. So, announcements. Oh man, I've got so much going on, guys, because I am in the process of opening up my own teaching art studio and gallery. Ah, it is a huge endeavor. You know, I've been a professional artist for a number of years, I've been a teaching artist for a number of years. But I've never had my own space to work in where I am hosting the classes on my own and uh, can really shape them and change them into what I want them to be. And I'm, I'm so super excited. The studio, which is in Indianapolis, Indiana, where I'm located, is called Studio Alchemy. And my website for it is studioalchemy.art. Isn't that cool? You can get, instead of .com, you can get .art. So it's studioalchemy.art. And in this space, I'm going to be hosting really regular classes that are painting one-on-one classes. But then also some really experimental classes that I'm super psyched about. Uh, you know, a lot of those are intuitive painting based, have, they use a lot of the art therapy techniques which we've been talking about on the show lately. Um, one of those classes that I'm going to be teaching is with Teresa Vasquez, who I'm interviewing on the show today. And the class we're going to be doing is called The Art of the Dream. She is not only an artist, but also an expert in dream analysis and um, bringing the images from your dreams forth so that you can learn from them. And in the class, we're going to be doing dream analysis and then creating artwork inspired by our dreams. So that class is going to start up in September of 2018, and it'll go for seven weeks. There are going to be classes in the new space that are going to be one-day intensive classes where we've got folks who are coming in from out of town. So I welcome you to look up on our new website, studioalchemy.art, and see if you can join us for any of our classes that we've got coming up. So let's chat about Teresa Vasquez. Uh, I met Teresa at the Indianapolis Art Center, where I worked until recently. She is um, the manager of their outreach department. It's called Outreach, and it sends teaching artists into uh, all sorts of, of inner-city program facilities in our area to work with children. Uh, in addition to that, she specializes in active dreaming and has gone through Robert Moss's training programs. Teresa holds an MFA in studio art from the School of Art Institute of Chicago and a bachelor's degree in creative writing from Oberlin College. And if you want to find out more about Teresa and all that she's got going on, you want to go to her website, which is T thedreamworld.com. Of course, I'll have that link in the show notes. And without further ado, here is my interview with the lovely Teresa Vasquez. 
Welcome, Teresa, to the podcast. Thanks, Eddie. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today. Here's my first question for you. What is the story of how you became an artiste? <laughs> you have to say it like that. I just say artiste. <laughs> wow. Well, Eddie, um, the story of how I became an artiste is um, is really not complete without a little bit of the story of my father. So my father uh, is an artist. He, he studied art, and he's primarily a sculptor, and um, he's also uh, a, a wonderful photographer. And when I was a kid, I always had the pleasure of watching him create and he worked a lot at home even though we lived in apartments at that time uh, he always had a closet that he would use as his dark room and so he would spend a lot of time in the closet and um, you know he would work on uh, creating prints and he would make you know just it seemed like dozens and dozens of prints of the same photograph and, you know, and so I kind of saw the artistic process. I saw the dedication that it, it really takes, you know, to, to producing art. And his, his major, his major work, though, is in sculpture. And he did a lot of, um, busts in, in clay, ceramic busts. And then he would also kind of, uh, later on in his process, he, made a lot of casts so he would he would work in uh, styrofoam or he would work in in clay and make casts and then um, get them in bronze and then uh, so I was observing all of this I also should say that my family is from Cuba we are were exiles refugees whatever you want to call our situation but we left Cuba for political purposes. My parents were expecting me when they arrived in the United States and I was born four months later. And so part of the art making for my dad really was finding um, finding other Latinos who were in the area and, and the area that we lived in was uh, Chicago, south side of Chicago. And so there was a really vibrant artistic community in our in our part of town we lived in Hyde Park and uh, one of the great pleasures every year for me was to go and see my dad uh, actually in an exhibition that they had at uh, the Museum of Science and Industry which was just um, artists of color there were some really exciting things going on and you know keep in mind this is the context of a real nexus of particularly black culture. Margaret Burroughs, um, who later went on to found the DuSable Museum, became uh, acquainted with my dad, and my dad actually was one of the ones that, that was uh, producing uh, one of the busts that was in the, the contest for the kind of the image of, of Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable, who was the uh, founder of Chicago, so it was a really big deal. Um, and Gwendolyn Brooks was somebody who was in the neighborhood, and I had the pleasure of hearing her read. And so it was a really vibrant community for black arts, but also for Latino arts. And my dad was a part of a group called Grupo Cuatro that was, uh, that was uh, pretty famous as well in Chicago. So I always grew up, you know, with my dad being this very high profile artist. And so therefore, you know, for myself, while I dreamed of, you know, of, of, of making art, I enjoyed making art. I loved art classes. I was part of the um, arts and literary magazine in high school. I didn't really see fine art as my thing. Um, I was, I always saw myself more as a writer. And so when I went to college, you know, I favored the writing and I studied creative writing. 
at Oberlin when I went there. But I also, I mean, I took classes in uh, in fine art, in sculpture, painting, drawing, etc. Um, but I didn't take it seriously, you know. It just wasn't something that that I saw myself being a part of. I saw myself as a writer, and I was going to go and live in New York and do the writer thing and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and of course that never happened. After college, I went back to Chicago, and you know, and not too long after that started a family. And I was always very involved in creating. So, you know, I was into music. I was into a variety of different crafts in my husband at the time was a, a really amazing um, textile artist. He wove and he crocheted like nobody's business and, you know, made clothes and different things. And, and I made jewelry and I made, you know, some more kind of crafty things. But I still didn't see myself as a fine artist, you know. I was more of a musician, poet, whatever. It really wasn't until... I kind of returned to the realm of dreams that I found kind of the the artist voice that, that was wanting to come through me. And, you know, at that point, it became like an imperative. It became something, you know, akin to, um, you know, they say that, that, that sometimes women have like this biological imperative that they want to have a child. I mean, and I, I experienced that. And so it was very similar. It's like my dreams were telling me that it was imperative for me to, you know, to begin to produce art and to take it more and more seriously and to make it into a daily practice. And so that's exactly, you know, what I did. So I should mention, though, <laughs> that I, I, I did go uh, to art school. I went to the uh, School of the Art Institute in Chicago, um, and I did study art. I studied art and technology, so I did a lot of sound work. I did a lot of um, uh, multimedia, web design, web type of projects delivered through the web, and... Um, also electronic sculpture, you know, sculpture using electronic elements to uh, illuminate or actuate them. Um, but even so, you know, getting this MFA, I still didn't think of myself as an artist. I thought of myself as a writer who was looking for a new venue, a new way to present the art. And a lot of that emerged from the fact that I was doing performance poetry and that that was something that was really amazing to me. And, and the whole kind of nexus of performance, whether it be musical or, or poetic performance, kind of spurred me on to going back to school. I felt like the only thing that I wanted to study at the time was art. Uh, that I wasn't going to try to go into an MFA writing program for whatever reason. I wanted to put the, put the words into an artistic context and, and see how, how that worked out. So, okay, so fast forward to maybe three years ago. Um, I kind of, you know, rediscovered through my dreams a lot of experiences that it caused me to kind of return to black paper and glitter pens. Okay. <laughs> Very kind of juvenile, you know, in many people's eyes. But to me, the, those were those were the the tools that kind of brought me back into it. And from there, I went on to you know painting and a variety of different liquid media, acrylic painting, collage, and, and different mixed media techniques. And, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been a real journey driven by dreams, pretty much. So, curious about the writing was not drawing you in. Like, 
like art was drawing you in. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I didn't mean to make that corny joke. Um, but, but it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't pulling you the way that visual art was. And it just seemed like you could, you know, you could have your dreams, and then you want to, you know, reconstruct them and work with them. And you could just write it out as we do in a dream journal, yeah. and just say this is what happened in the dream, and then we work it. You know, why do you think that it was the visual image that was so appealing? Well, I think um, the the imagery from my dreams, the experiences from my dreams, were really visually compelling. And yes, I mean, I, I have kept, you know, dream journals since I was 12 years old, and that's really wonderful and effective. And I even have like little maps and little drawings and stuff in my journals. But this was a whole nother level. I mean, so when I started working with my dreams again, and that was largely due to um, coming into contact with the work of Robert Moss. Um, I was taking a class with him online, and we were doing a number of different exercises, but one of the exercises was um, connecting with kind of a, um, a higher being of some kind, and... So the way that we do this work with the, the lucid dream journeys is that we use a shamanic drum. And it's a very constant beat. It's um, kind of a fast beat, maybe um, 200, 220 beats per minute. And so that puts your mind into a theta uh, brainwave, which is essentially that same state that you're in when you're between asleep and awake, um, as you're going into sleep, but also when you're coming out of sleep. And right away, when I closed my eyes, I saw this, this man, this African man. And he was, it's like, as if I closed my eyes and he was right in front of my face. <laughs> and he says to me, uh, I'm here because you have our cup. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, what does that mean that I have your cup? What is that? And so this kind of led me on a whole quest, you know, and he gave me more information about himself. Um, and then I, I looked up, uh, I, I looked up the, um, you know, the possibility of, of there being this cup that I might have. And, you know, in the process of active dreaming, one of the things we do is that we, uh, we look at the content of the dream and we, uh, try to develop action plans in order to kind of address the content of the dream. And so, for me, my action plan was to create a cup, you know. And, oh, yeah. And so I, I, you know, I at the at the time and even now, I'm not terribly comfortable with ceramics. Ceramics is just not my thing. And so I went to one of those pottery pa painting places, yeah. and I, you know, I found a design that I liked, and I, you know, I glazed it and. Um, and so I actually created this cup, and this cup, you know, sits in a very special place in my home, and it's something that I use ceremonially, ceremonially uh, in order to kind of evoke that, that, that same thing that this being, you know, was trying to convey to me. You know, that was maybe my very first experience of making kind of a, a, a dream image, very concrete. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then it really went from there. There was a variety of different imagery that, that came to me. I remember I had a dream where my, um, my, my daughter was going to have a daughter, 
And I did a dream journey where I just kind of asked, well, where, where does this child come from? Where is this child coming from to us? And it was a really deep dream journey. And I witnessed these beings of light. There were several of them. There were about three or four of them that I could, you know, fully visualize and they were made they were made of light it was like a light that was that had substance to it and that image was just so captivating and they were so happy to see me and they affirmed yes you know your granddaughter is coming from us you know and then you know I felt compelled to to draw that again like I was saying before with black paper and glitter pens, you know, which was like the best way that I could uh, find to illustrate in a 2D fashion kind of what I had, what I had seen, you know, in this, in this dream journey. And so like that one, there's just story after story after story. And then, you know, one became two and two became four and four became eight like that. And just, you know, um, this is what's kind of spurred a um, a renaissance kind of in my in my um, artistic life. Awesome. So you've explained dreams and and how they're connected to your artwork. But do you believe that creating artwork can be a means of connecting to our unconscious in the way that um, Carl Jung talked about? For those listeners who might not be aware of this work, you we have the conscious mind and then we have the unconscious mind that we are unaware of but definitely influences the way we think and feel and there's a lot of artwork that has been made that with the intention of pulling that unconscious forth um, when we have dreams um, we can hopefully get a glimpse at the unconscious through dreams and um, and I definitely see a connection there and the class that we're going to be creating We've got some exercises that are going to be examining that. What are your thoughts and feelings on the unconscious? Do you even believe in it? (laughs) Oh, definitely. I I believe in the unconscious. And I feel that that there's a personal strain of the unconscious, but that there's also a collective unconscious. So I think as artists, we are definitely influenced by, you know, our own personal um, hopes, wishes, dreams, struggles, uh, annoyances, whatever they may be, um, and those may be conscious or unconscious to different extents. But we're also, of course, in kind of the zeitgeist that we live in, so we're influenced by you know, pop culture of all kinds were influenced by uh, political uh, situations, religion, um, you know, national identities and all of these other things. But for both, there's this underlying kind of stream, you know, it's kind of maybe we, we are aware of the tip of the iceberg and the rest is kind of below the surface of the of the water and so in accessing that content there's a variety of ways you can do that one is definitely through dreams and you know i think one of the things that's so compelling about dream imagery is that it addresses uh it addresses feelings and it addresses emotions and the whole vocabulary of dreams really has to do with feelings, emotions, feeling tone, how different situations kind of impact um, on your on, on your uh, waking consciousness. You know, um, so this is kind of where where these kinds of things come to the surface. Another aspect of that is what what Carl Jung termed synchronicity, which is basically situations in waking life 
two or more situations in waking life that, that, that seem to have no causal relationship whatsoever, but that may be along a similar theme, that may seem to be kind of speaking to you in similar ways, um, and, and in your mind they have a relationship. I mean, that, 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 that's almost indelible. You know, and, and so a true synchronicity ties those events, those, those circumstances together. Some may call them coincidence, some may call them happenstance or whatever you call it. What Carl Jung called those things were, were synchronicity. And it's basically again where, where the unconscious, uh, kind of comes up to the surface so that you can see it like a, you know, like a mermaid or a shark underneath, <laughs> underneath the water lurking just below. So it's, um, it's pretty amazing what, what you find. And just as visual imagery, it's very compelling. And to me, I mean, I, I love, you know, nature and flowers and, you know, people's faces and all of these things. But as far as what I want to create art about, it's, it's usually about those dreams, either the, um, circumstances of the dreams, the landscapes, the, the characters of the dreams, or, uh, and I think for abstraction, this is really key, trying to portray those feeling tones or, or bring those feeling tones to the viewer because, you know, it's, it really is again all about feeling. Hmm. My next question is for you. We are both fans of Robert Moss's dream work methods. And one of the things I really like about his way the, of dream analysis um, and uh, the lightning uh, dreamer's method is that he encourages the dreamer to determine what the symbols within a dream mean for themselves. So, for example, if I have a dream where I'm going to the top of the mountain and I can't get to the top of the mountain, then I should um, come up for myself what this means, how it can be applied to my life, and then I can take those lessons and, and bring them to the conscious level and take some action. And, and of course, then there are, um, on the other hand, a lot of people love the dream dictionaries, right? <laughs> With all of those symbols, and, and I certainly have enjoyed looking at those on occasion, and, and, and sometimes it's, you know, oh, the mountain, they say the mountain means, you know, the, the summit of your goals, or whatever the dream dictionary might say mm-hmm. about those symbols, and we could maybe even call them archetypal symbols, it, and uh, because the idea is that they are symbols that are universal, and so no matter who's dreaming it, it's, it means the same thing, I'm using air quotes. But I'm, I'm kind of on the, the fence in that I think there are archetypal symbols that are mutually true, but then sometimes we have to take the symbol and really apply it to our own life and what's going on and be open to interpretation and not just just take what's in the dream dictionary and say, oh yeah, that's it, yeah. And, and really push ourselves to go further. Your thoughts on archetypal symbols and dream mm-hmm. dictionaries? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, I am not a fan of dream dictionaries. Uh, however, dream dictionaries as well as dictionaries of symbols, um, any amount of, uh, online guides of, you know, what does this animal represent or what is, you know, the number four or whatever it might be. I, I see those as clues. And again, going back to the whole idea of there being a personal stream of, of the unconscious and the collective stream of the unconscious. Uh, this really addresses kind of those universal or arch- archetypal symbols, um, really more so address the, the collective, right? Uh, each of us 
has had any number of experiences in waking life and our dreams that cause certain symbols to be very personal to us. And not only that, but the circumstances in which those symbols emerge are very specific. And for whatever the dream weaver is able to do, meaning the, 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 the one that bestows dreams on us, you can call it God, you can call it the dream weaver, you can call it whatever you want, our own mind, that has this uncanny ability to weave together these, these narratives and these scenes and these images in just the perfect way so that it becomes a, a story that is custom-made for you. <laughs> and in so doing, then those, those narratives are very personal, the meanings are very personal. Uh, but it's very helpful to have others, other trusted individuals with whom you can share your dreams and the the symbols that are seen as archetypal or symbols that, that may have specific meanings, such as the ones that you might see in, you know, dream dictionaries or what have you, but that can help you unpack and maybe share what some of some of those images may mean in a personal fashion for you, the dreamer, to take or leave or evaluate uh, so that you can better understand the meanings of your dreams. Sometimes, of course, because it's unconscious material, we have a certain resistance to there being certain meanings. And if we have a room full of trusted dreamers that we're sharing the dream with, and if each one is, is pointing to similar constellations of meanings, then we're able to take that information, particularly if the, if the other dreamers make it clear that it's a projection, that what they're sharing is what they would see if it were their dream. So in this safe environment where we're sharing dreams, and we're also sharing projections, but owning those projections, then it, it frees up the dreamer to determine what the, what, what the meaning is for their, for their dream symbols or what have you. And one of the phrases that, that, uh, Robert Moss uses and also Jeremy Taylor, another kind of dream pioneer is that when, when you find the, true meaning of certain imagery in your dreams. You have truth bumps. You kind of have like that chill that goes through you or you you have that aha, you know, of oh my gosh, this is what it means. You know. Um, and so that's something that happens experientially as something that happens in your body. It's not something that's like in your in your mind. It's not intellectual. It's like it's down to your core. You know, and, and that being the case, these are the kinds of images that you may return to over and over again. So you see, like, recurring dreams, recurring themes, like for myself, the elevator is a oh, recurring theme. Okay, okay. <laughs> and, but the elevator has a different meaning each time it appears. You know, sometimes the elevator goes up right to the top and just goes right through the ceiling and other times the elevator doesn't go the way you want it to it goes sideways oh. or the whole room turns into an elevator um at, but each time it's kind of a it's kind of a trope of 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 my dreams and other people share that imagery as well but each time it appears it has a different meaning within the context of you know the dream Awesome. So maybe you can, for the benefit of our listeners who are familiar with Robert Moss's dream work method, um, briefly describe how it works, and we could even give him an example. And I've got a dream from my dream journal where we could talk through the, the method. And um, and this is a dream that I did create a painting from. And so it's a good example of tying in the dreams with the artwork. Describe the method for us, expert. Okay. 
do. So, um, so one of the core practices of active dreaming is what's called lightning dream work. And lightning dream work is just a fast and fun way to share dreams with people in such a way that you're not sharing, you're not oversharing, it's not TMI, you have control over how much you share, but that you're also getting the, pers- the perspectives of a whole group of people. So we can demonstrate lightning dream work, and, yeah. and I think your, your dream is, is perfect because, like you said, you've actually created a painting from this dream. So the first step of lightning dream work is for you to narrate your dream uh, in the present tense, and you can start with the title for that dream. So, um, why don't you go ahead and tell us the account of your dream? Well, I'm so prepared with my homework because uh, we talked about this dream in, in the dream circle. <laughs> <laughs> so, the title I gave this dream was Fake Scene in Scotland. And this is my account from my journal. I'm going to try to make it present tense. Okay, okay. here we go. I am traveling to Scotland home of my ancestors, by the way. Someone was with me, probably Sean, and we went to a skating rink. Oh, oh, I already did it. We are in a skating rink. (laughs) (laughs) When I write it down, I usually do fast on, sure. Um, Alright. I am meeting people. I understand them all perfectly clearly. And then... There are models, and these models are skiing down a long runway. Then uh, we go on a walk to the right. I see a farmer, and I walk through his barn. He is playing music uh, on a stereo, but he has abandoned his work um, that's on a table, on a work table. And I see him at the house. I continue through, and I see a beautiful vista of majestic mountains and a river flowing through it. And I get out my camera, and I'm all ready to take a picture of it. But then I notice that there's a glare on the camera. And then I realized that the mountain scene isn't a real mountain scene. I'm not seeing a real scene in front of me. I am seeing a projection that's on a TV screen. It wasn't real, and I am tricked. <laughs> I'm mad about it, but I continue walking. Mm. Wow. And that <laughs> is it. <laughs> So that's that's great. So so the, that's the first step of the lightning dream work process. And um, you may wonder why you ought to say it in in uh, kind of the present tense. It actually brings the dream to a more vivid place in your mind when you are reciting it in the present tense. So, okay, very good. So that's the first, that's the first item. The next item is we're, I'm going to ask you some follow-up questions that will kind of help put your dream into context. Uh, so the first question is, uh, what were your feelings upon waking? I mean, you may have had certain feelings when you were in the dream. What were your feelings after you woke up about the, the dream? Hmm. I would say overall there was this feeling of betrayal because of the, the TV screen and how I thought it was one thing, but it was something else. And I wasn't sure who had tricked me and why they were trying to trick me. Mm-hmm. Um, was it just a practical joke? And you know, then at the end of the dream, I'm continuing on up the hill and know where it goes from mm-hmm. there you know mm-hmm. so it's the, that was the end that mm-hmm. just uh, can't believe you tricked me that feeling mm-hmm. the beginning of the dream was pretty positive 
mm-hmm. I'm in Scotland and I'm meeting these people who are really different and but I get them and mm-hmm. I could understand what they're saying. So start positive and then I feel tricked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So then my next question relates to the various images and also symbols and, and kind of what you uh, think of in, in waking life related to them. So if you start at the beginning, <clears throat> you mentioned that Scotland is your ancestral homeland. One of them. One of them. Okay. I look most <laughs> I look most like my Scottish ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, yes. Um so, all right, so interestingly enough, though, you're in Scotland at a skating rink, and then you also mentioned that there are models that are skiing down the hill, so I'm... Oh, it's not a hill, though. It's oh. a straight way. That's oh, right. okay. Back and forth. Okay, yeah. so they're skiing, like, cross-country, uh, cross-country skiing. I guess. Kind of like. Sure. Okay. Okay. So they're engaging in winter sports in general. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so what is your association with winter sports in waking life? <laughs> well, I don't do them. <laughs> um, I mean... Winter is not my favorite season. Uh huh. Okay. Um, and I'm not a very sportive sort of a person. <laughs> okay. Um, and certainly not competitive in the the, the skiing where they're going back and forth. There, mm-hmm. there was some sort of a competition going uh-huh. on there, and everybody's watching. Okay. I would never participate in anything like that. Okay. Myself. Okay. But maybe you'd be a spectator. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then, your dream goes to another episode. So there's you walk to the right. You make you make that clear, uh, and I'm motioning with my left hand because I'm really bad at left <laughs> and right. Um, so with your right, um, you're going to where there's a there's a a farmer, and you're actually walking through his barn, um, and he's abandoned his work. What kind of associations do you have with with the barn and the farmer? Perhaps I'm reminded of my grandfather, who was a very, very hardworking person, and he was raised on a farm in Kentucky, and he did not have a barn when I knew him, but, you know, certainly I would associate barns with, with him more than anybody else, mm-hmm. and just in general, the work table, uh, it's a, there's something here about working mm-hmm. and um, producing something, but then you're maybe stepping away from it for a little break. Um, when the farmer was over at his house, he was goofing off. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, the, the, you know, maybe there could be something there about wanting to take a break uh-huh. or... Um, maybe, maybe I shouldn't take a break. Maybe I should get back to my work table like the farmer. To me, it was most about work. Okay. Okay, and so then the next episode, you are gazing at this majestic vista of mountains and the valley below, and you're getting your camera out, and... And then you realize, due to the glare, that the uh, that there's a that there's a screen that you're looking at. So I'm curious, um, on the one hand, how you relate, and I kind of know the answer to this, but how do you relate to <laughs> landscapes, and how do you relate to screens in waking life? Well, I love landscapes. I love just the image of, of land in general, and I, I find it very appealing. And I've certainly created a lot of paintings over the years that are of landscapes themselves. And then the screen, 
you know, if you think of the screen, I think of the computer or the television, and how, you know, especially with, with most television programs or movies, it's, it's acting, it's not real life. And, and yet, you know, as with any art form, there's a truth in the, the art, even if it's false. So, um, you know, so I could watch, uh, I could watch a film that's a rendition of Hamlet, let's say, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's not, it's not really a character named Hamlet, it's an actor playing mm-hmm. Hamlet, but of course, within mm-hmm. this art form, there's all these truths that are on earth, mm-hmm. and so for me, this television screen in the dream, there's something about artwork and Mm -hmm. the landscape or these images that we're creating Mm -hmm. and the question of is it false or Mm -hmm. is it true and and certainly when I create a piece then maybe it's a photograph because I grab my camera in Mm -hmm. the dream or maybe it's a painting Mm -hmm. but when I create a piece I want it to be true Mm -hmm. I want it to be real and authentic Mm -hmm. and not not false something that's just tricking somebody. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So, all right. So that's two questions down. First, the feelings, and then the associations. The next question has to do with whether you feel that this dream could come about in the future, either literally or symbolically in some way. Hmm. Um, well, let's see. After I had this dream, and then I created a painting of the scene that's the majestic vista. Um, <laughs> and so I did make that concrete. I'd love to visit Scotland. I have a, like a long list of places I'd like to see within um that landscape, mm-hmm. if you will, but I don't know when that'll happen, you know, so we shall see, mm-hmm. and certainly I think that Sean was perhaps in the dream, because we mm-hmm. oftentimes travel together, mm-hmm. and I'd like to have it come true, mm-hmm. but I don't want to be tricked. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good, so... The final question from this section is, what would you like to know about the dream? What is most important or compelling to you that uh, that you would then, you know, like me to respond to? Hmm. I, I think I want to know if there's any other action that I should take relating to this dream, which could be related to work in general, um, could be related to... The idea of an image being false or true, and how can I tell whether an image is false or true? In the dream, I could tell because suddenly there's a glare on my on the screen, and I just see it. But I don't want to be fooled. So, what can I do to guard against being fooled? <laughs> wow. Okay, so um, so now we get to part three of Lightning Dreamwork, and this is the part that is kind of interactive. So okay. you've, you've explained your dream, you've talked about all the various imagery and everything, and so in a dream circle, if this were a dream circle, then each person would get the opportunity to you know, talk about the imagery if it were their dream. And so I will do that now. So if this were my dream and, um, and I knew that you had already painted the dramatic and beautiful vista that you saw and were able to identify as uh, a screen and, you know, and I wanted to know what other action that I might take. Uh, one thing I would contemplate is the idea that 
when we paint, one of the most uh, crucial things, if, if, if a painter is a good painter, able to portray realistic things, then that painter knows the tricks of tricking the eye. Ah. <laughs> and there's many, 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 many tricks that one can use in terms of shading, in terms of light, in terms of perspective, and all of these different things that, you know, um, painters strive to, you know, to get right, if you will, in order to show a realistic portrayal of, of whatever it is that they're painting. So certainly, when a painter creates a painting, there is, it's almost like in theater, there's a suspension of disbelief. You're, you're willing to gaze at the painting in a way that is going to draw you in. You're going to, you know, understand and view the, you know, the colors and the forms and the, you know, the, the, uh, whatever's being portrayed in that in that light that it is a trick <laughs> that you are tricking others oh my God. as a painter <laughs> and i know those tricks and you know those tricks you know them very well and so um a, a screen is yet a, another level of illusion uh because not only i mean if you look at a painting on a screen you know, then you're, you're already, you know, twice removed at least from, from the actual, from the actual piece. Um, and then, I mean, you can go way out and say, you know, this is these different examples, the, you know, the skating rink, there's the, and the model skiing, there's a sense of competition. It's play. It's, it's all about, how people interact with one another to entertain and have fun and all of those kinds of things. And they're models. They're not like even just, you know, um, you know, Janie and Susie, they're like, they're models, you know, and you don't have names for them. And somehow you know that they're models, uh, or I do, if it were my dream. And then there's the, the, the hardworking man who has, put aside his work and is goofing off so that that's another kind of play that there's yes there's the serious work but then there's also play and you know makes me think of you know all work and no play you know makes Jack a dull boy right <laughs> and so he's, yeah. he's not he's not trying to be the dull boy right, right. and so then, you know, the, the image of the, of the mountains and knowing that it is, um, that it is a screen, all of this to me, if it were my dream, would, would suggest that, that I accept the illusion. That oh. I accept the notion that whether I'm playing at sports or whether I'm, having time off from my work or whether I am, you know, gazing at this screen with this majestic vista that I then later paint, you know, all of this is play. It's all a dream. And, you know, in when you're talking about sleep yoga and things of this nature, one of the first practices is in fact, um, gazing at the entire world, everything that goes on and reminding yourself, as you're walking through it, this is all a dream. This is all a dream. And, you know, if we look at the world, you know, the, the, the philosophy um, of, of, of the East, that this is all Maya, that this is all illusion, that life, um, whether you're asleep, awake, or in between, is an illusion. It's accepting that illusion. Mm -hmm. So for me it kind of answers the question, is there any other action to take with acceptance, with accepting that we are living within an illusion on a variety of different levels, that the screens we gaze at and spend so much time 
looking at our illusions and that the paintings that we create are illusions and that, you know, perhaps even our waking lives are but an illusion. Yeah. Mm. And that's how, how I would take it. Hmm. Wow. So the final step of Lightning Dream Work is to ask you as the dreamer, Eddie, what is your action plan? And of course, you have already made the, the major action, which is portraying the landscape that you observed in your dream in an actual painting. But I'm wondering, are there any other action steps that you want to take with this dream? Hmm. I like what you just said about accepting the illusion. Accepting this illusion that we're creating through the work of being an artist, being okay with that and not letting it irritate me in the way it did at the end of the dream, <laughs> or feel like I was tricked by somebody else. Um, that illusion that we create is fun. I like, I yeah. like that. So uh, now I'm thinking, okay, how, my action plan might just be to lighten up, uh, but that's always, that's what I tell myself all the time. I don't know. <laughs> like um, um, and, and certainly something that I think about a lot is when do I pull in a very thoughtful image into a painting where I'm really realistically rendering it? and taking the time to do that. And when do I not? When do I just have at it and just be creating fun color forms in a very intuitive painting sort of a way? Mm-hmm. When do we let those images emerge? When do we not? Uh, how worth it is it to render things realistically? It's something mm-hmm. I think about a lot. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, if I go back to play, well... It doesn't, it doesn't matter too much. You know? Just go with the flow. Of, um, okay, so I, that was great. That was great. I mean, it's always in line. Even though we did this same dream before, mm-hmm. gotten something different out of it this time than yeah. the last. Yeah. And I think it's, it's worth going through that uh, process um, because it can open your eyes to what the dream was really about. Mm. I've certainly had aha moments during the dream circle and other people have as well. Um, and, you know, just bringing it back to the class that we're going to do this fall, you're going to teach everybody how to do that method and we're going to work on it together. And mm-hmm. yeah. Any other final thoughts on that before I go into my next question? Yeah, well, just, just briefly, um, it's it is interesting that kind of the second time around different things came out mm-hmm. and part of that I think was that you read the entire account from your journal, which mm-hmm. I don't believe you had done and there were certain aspects that were that were different, I think particularly about the very beginning. Um, but just as you know, one dream, you know, two takes with, you know, two people when you, when you add, you know, six or eight people around the circle and you share these dreams, then you get just that many more perspectives and that helps you then figure out, well, what is, what is this dream really trying to tell me? Uh, how, how are the many ways, ways that I can look at it? But also, um, it gives you it, it gives you greater greater insight, greater impact, and um, so so it is very situational. It can be very situational, and I think with this class that we are going to be doing, the art of the dream. It's going to give us the opportunity not just to produce artworks that are inspired by dreams, by the imagery, by the feelings, by the characters, etc., but it's also going to give us a chance to 
dream in community and share those dreams throughout the, the period of the class. You know, we will have mechanisms through social media that we can share those dreams like every morning and uh, and be processing them all along. So it's not just the class itself, it's the community of dreamers that we will build. Exciting. Exciting. Alrighty. Uh, last couple questions. What would you say to your younger artist self? <laughs> you were always there. Oh. <laughs> you okay. were always there. So I would say that because of what I said earlier, that I never saw myself as an artist. And I realized that, you know, if I had really gone headlong into it as a young person, that I would have, you know, 30-some years of experience as an artist by now. <laughs> but instead, you know, I mean, our lives take certain turns because of who we are, because of who is around us, because of how we define ourselves. And I wasn't so worried about the definition part, but the definition part ended up being what kind of kept me away from making art, of having a real practice the way that I have it now. And, you know, so that... It, that's one of those things. I'm a late bloomer in this regard, and I'm okay with that. But if I had it to to do over again, I would I I would have taken on that practice a lot earlier. I I do see a day when when the two will really merge fully, the art and the writing, and you know that's an exciting prospect. Interesting. I, I'm intrigued by what you just said about the definitions and how the definition of were you an artist or not made you hesitate to really dive deep into and started to create. And then I think too, it can do the opposite. Sometimes we we decide I am an artist or I I I'm a piano player, let's say, and then maybe we need to move on to another art form or another hobby or another something, but then we're so stuck in the but I am this mm -hmm. that it's hard to transition. Mm -hmm. And for myself, I the example of the piano, I played the piano when I was a kid mm -hmm. and then um, put it put it down horizontally. Put down a piano. <laughs> you put the, step you away. Put the top down. You put the top down and you step away. Um, and uh, and and then I, when I was in my twenties, I played the violin a lot mm -hmm. and was in bands and stuff. And that, but mm -hmm. when I picked up the violin, it was just kind of on a whim, and it wasn't. Um, but I ended up feeling like that was my instrument, and I, I, I look back and I think, why did I even waste this time on it? <laughs> I mean, I learned a lot from it, um, but it's it's like you got to be open to transitioning mm -hmm. to a different medium if because it might be better. Mm -hmm. Or or not, I don't know, but but I think do think sometimes like that that definition can be uh, restrictive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, something something I'd like to say, you know, to follow up with that is that you know I really appreciate beginning students for that reason is that they they have that openness, they have that beginner's mind that they can have the freedom to do it however they do it, you know, and to, and to really learn and to be receptive. And I think that however we define ourselves in life, you know, those things tend to kind of crystallize and we often don't give ourselves permission, like you were saying, to, 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 to be, you know, all of who and what we, we might be. And so much of it is, is situational, so much of it has to do with, like for myself, I really believe that a lot of it had and still has to do with the fact that, you know, my my father is like this 
amazing. I mean, like he's the real artist. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm a small artist, and he's oh. like an artist with a capital A. But you know, um, and I don't, I'm not deprecating myself in saying that. It, you know, he he is a very accomplished artist, and I'm very proud of him, and very happy that 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 he is. You know, but because of him being you know, who and what he is defining himself that way. I never kind of gave myself permission until I started seeing that people were encouraging me. Oh, I really like what you did. Oh, wow, that one, that one's really cool. And, you know, and seeing that I too had the ability to connect with, with people viewing my work and it kind of, you know, was part of what changed my perspective you know, in, in, in tandem with the dreams. So the, the fact of being able to, through dreams, access these experiences that in waking life we can't access has allowed me to get these these images, these situations to kind of land in some kind of a tangible form. And I think for any dreamer who is wanting to produce art from dreams, that's really the that's that's really the key is is being able to bring into waking life these, you know, exceptional, marvelous, fantastic situations that that we experience you know and not to not to deny the world of you know wakefulness it's beauty or it's um, it's it's magic it's passion you know all of the joys that we have in in our waking lives but to bring to bring these images these characters these situations forward is really transformational and it'll keep me you know pursuing this this practice of uh, of trying to bring my dreams about into it what <laughs> awesome well said thank you so much Teresa thank you very much Eddie You have been listening to the Alchemy of Art podcast. To find out more about Addie Hirshton and her work, go to azirfineart.com. That's A-Z-H-I-R-F-I-N-E-A-R-T dot com.